All right, welcome back to episode two of our Chrysostom podcast. Excited to get going today. Hey, today we're going to begin a three-part series on St. John's sermons on the power of demons and the devil. But let me kind of clarify what those are. So the first sermon that we're looking at today is against those who say that demons govern human affairs. And then the last two sermons are on the power of man to resist the devil. So let me give you a little bit of background context. We don't know exactly when St. John priest preached the first sermon that we're going to look at today, but we do know that the third sermon was preached two days after the second one. So they were kind of in a little uh, early sermon series, if you will. We know that John was still a presbyter in Antioch, and he wasn't preaching as a bishop because he was in the presence of another bishop and acknowledged the bishop and kind of made it clear, I'm not a bishop and I'm in Antioch. (laughs) We, We could kind of gain that from inference. So the overall themes of these three sermons is that people are basically trying to excuse their sin, their bad moral behavior, by saying that the influence of demons were making them do something, that irresistible fate made them sin, or whatever. And there were people who, as we'll see today, were frustrated that bad things in the world would happen, and and they claimed, well, it's actually because the demons govern human affairs. And so John really needed to set out to kind of dismiss all of those things and show that God is in control, and then to give us a firm balance of the reality that, yes, we're born with a sin nature, and yet at the same time, we have free will, and it's not the demons who make us sin, but it's our own free choices. And the reason I wanted to start off with these three sermons is this. I wanted us to begin by viewing St. John's sermons, because that's what he's most famous for, is his preaching. And then after we do this, we're actually going to look at some of his letters. So his letters to Olympias. I think I accidentally called her Olympus in the first episode, because I'm a loser. But regardless, it's letters to Olympias, because I want to start us off with something kind of small, something that's not going to take a hundred weeks to get through, and really kind of wanted to get you a, a close look at the very various types of writings that we have from Chrysostom. But we're going to begin with these three sermons. From here on out, I'll probably interchange the word sermons and homilies. Homily is simply another word for sermon, and that's what you'll hear them reference to a lot is homilies. So let's hop in to homily one against those who say that demons govern the human affairs. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to read a whole lot of these sermons because I don't want most of the episode to be me strictly reading it. What I'm going to do is just summarize the contents. What I would encourage you to do is if you can find any of the sermons or writings that ever talk about for free on the internet, go ahead and get them. Go ahead and look them up. A lot of things are already kind of on there for free. A quick Google search, you know, whatever, against those who say that demons govern human affairs, St. John Chrysostom PDF might help you out. I haven't checked yet, but if you can get hands, get your hands on this, go ahead. And if not, you can always go to Amazon. If you have Logos, you can go through the Logos store and purchase these there and just do this quick search and it's on there. So I encourage you to read along. I want you to read But for the goal of this podcast, I want to summarize St. John's thoughts rather than spending most of the time um, reading it out without really explaining it. So 
with that being said, let's let's hop into it. So St. John actually begins this sermon commending his listeners. Uh, you'll, you'll notice John does this a lot, where he begins his sermon kind of on a different track than the actual sermon will be on. And because these are preached live and there's interaction between the congregation and whatnot, he really, uh, he, he lets himself go sometimes. He lets himself get distracted. And so before we even get to the main content of the sermon, Chrysostom is teaching us something. So it begins and he commends those who were listening to him the Sunday before, and he commends them for their desire to listen to him, to listen to the sermon. He actually talks about how his sermon, the, really the past couple of weeks before this sermon, uh, he went extra long to the point where he thought, like, maybe I'll never stop, you know? Like, uh, he kind of makes a little comment like that, but that, that he goes a long time, and instead of most of the congregation getting angry at that, they're actually cool with it. They have a desire to listen. And John uses this hilarious analogy. He says that the congregation are like a bunch of drunks at a party who the more they drink, it stirs up their appetite and they want more to drink. That although the amount of alcohol they had should have satisfied them, for some reason, they want more. And he talks about how the congregation, as they listen to St. John and listen to the word, where they should have been satisfied, and he had preached for a long time. Instead, they wanted to continue listening, and how they actually ended in applause for the sermon, and how they really wanted to go after the Word of God. And so he commends them and says that he wants to feed them, and he wants to be there for them, and he wants to to preach the Word of God for them. And I think this is a really important lesson there for us today, that John is commending his, his congregation for desiring to hear the word and hear the word preached and delivered. And so I think this is something that you and I can learn today is to value the word of God to value solid preaching, to value Bible reading time, to to be those people who stir, who just gets our hearts stirred up in the Word of God so much that that we're never satisfied. And honestly, maybe you're in a dry spot right now. Maybe maybe you don't feel that that way about the Word of God. Ask the Lord to produce in you a a desire for His Word. St. John commends them for wanting more and more and, and spending their time listening to Him and I agree. But then he ends with this. He says that those who can't handle that long of preaching to just leave when necessary, which is really, really funny because I don't know a whole lot of modern preachers that are like, honestly, if you can't take me, just just walk out. But that's what he tells him. He's like, look, if you just, if you've got your fill and you feel good about it, go ahead and leave. He says, but don't demand that I change. He says, don't demand shorter sermons. Don't demand that I change the time or anything like that. He says, if you need to leave and this is enough for you, go on. But don't harm those around you who who want stronger sermons, who want longer sermons, who, who want the Word of God. And I think that's a word for us today, too, that, hey, w- we don't beg the pastor to conform to us. Allow the pastor to pastor. Allow the people who desire the Word of God to get the Word of God. And if it's one of those things where, hey, you can't make it to the extra Wednesday night Bible study, or you don't have time for the small group, and, and you feel satisfied from other different outlets, that's good. Just don't kind of impose your way on everybody else. Chrysostom comments on that and, and, and really values his hearers, but that is neither here nor there to the actual main content of the sermon. So he moves on 
in his sermon, and he gives us two kind of peripheral points um, to kind of build up before he really moves in to his main one on asking the question, do demons over the world. <laughs> um, so he first starts, starts out talking about sin and salvation. So he starts off telling us that our sin is from our original parents, Adam and Eve, that that is where sin originated, that we weren't created in sin, that God didn't force us into sin, and he doesn't go along with Pelagius, the, the heretic who says that we're not even born in sin, we're fine. He makes sure to make it clear that God didn't take away our nature, but we wasted what we had been given. Chrysostom actually uses this analogy. He, he says that sin is like a sailor who is shipwrecked, that it wasn't the fault of the wind or the waves. It's not like he got caught in this uncontrollable storm, but the shipwreck was completely the fault of the sailor. Not only that, but it's as if the sailor wrecked himself in the port, not at sea. You see, Adam and Eve fell into sin, and it was nobody's fault but theirs. And it wasn't a result of the difficult world. It wasn't like the world was fallen or they were forced into hard work or anything like that. They fell while they were in paradise, like a sailor crashing in the port, and it's his own fault. That sin was a result of Adam and Eve. And yet, and this is the good news, though we lost what had been given, God had compassion on us. And it's as if the sailor was received as lovingly as if he had undergone his shipwreck by the way of wind and sea and not his own fault. That God had compassion on us and loved us as if sin had nothing to do with us, as if we weren't guilty sinners. God loves us so much, he wants to receive us back and restore us. And that's why John's second point is this, and, he, and, and this is a direct quote. John says, But God made the gain greater than the loss and brought our nature to the royal throne. Then he quotes Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6-7, through 7, which says, He raised us up with him and made us to sit with him on his right hand in the heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might shew the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us. In Christ we've been seated in the heavenly places, that though we gave up our spot in paradise, God has actually given us more than what we originally had, and instead of being in the Garden of Eden, we are seated in heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's love, his compassion, his care for his people. It's God's loving kindness. Chrysostom goes on to talk about how God's loving kindness is actually past any human explanation. He talks about how even the Apostle Paul couldn't really put it in, in adequate, adequate words, but he has to express how it's past understanding. And so I think that's a thought worth thinking about. Wherever you're at right now, know this, that God loves you more than anything. God loves you with the, with the love that he has for his son. And, and he loves you so much that though he could have left you in your sin, he decided to save you from your sin. And not only that, but put you in a better place than the original Garden of Eden. That you are in union with Christ if you're a Christian and seated in the heavenly places. That you have an inheritance that was fit for, for the Son of God. And now you've been adopted into that family and received that inheritance too. That is God's amazing love, His loving kindness. But then St. John moves into his third point, 
And this is kind of the, the, the main uh, uh, meat of his message. And so what John's going to do is he's going to give us a biblical background of God's loving kindness, and then he's going to give us four kind of sources of or places of application at the end. So here's where he goes, speaking of, of, of the sin and, and the fall and the paradise. He says that even God's expelling Adam and Eve from paradise was an act of loving kindness. That not only God's saving us and restoring us and giving us something greater than the original, but even as a result of their sin, kicking Adam and Eve out of paradise was an act of God's loving kindness. Like he, he points out Eve. He says that because Eve was expelled and felt the sting of her sin, she was actually humbled and turned to God. See, when she bore a son, she said, I have gotten a man. This is the translation John was using. I have gotten a man through the Lord. Eve recognized God as her source, though in the garden she kind of despised God, if you will, and listened to the devil. That it was through her punishment, through being kicked out, that she was actually able to turn back to God. Regarding the birth of Seth, she gives glory to God. Chrysostom remarks, this is his quote, the woman suffered expulsion from paradise, but by means of her ejection, she was led to a knowledge of God so that she found a greater thing than she lost. Because when she had Seth, she said that he was directly from God. She gave credit to him. So the being kicked out was better for them. Chrysostom even moves on to Cain. He says that if Adam and Eve had remained in the garden and then they, you know, Cain got to remain as well after they had him, he believes that Cain might even have killed Adam if he wasn't expelled from the rest of humanity and with a, with a threat of death hanging over him. Now that is just pure speculation. That's getting into the mind of Chrysostom and the way that he thinks. But he's kind of thinking, okay, Cain is a sinful man. He resisted God. He was able to kill his own brother. Why would, not, why would he not kill his own father? His parents clearly took the side of Abel. They didn't like what Cain did. It's very possible. But what did God do? He threatened Cain with death. He, he kicked him out. He kind of hung that over his head, put him in a little bit of fear. And this was good for Cain because it kept him from committing even more sins. He's laying this foundation that sometimes discipline and punishment is for our, our betterment. So then he asked this question. Well, if it was good that they were kicked out of paradise, why did God give them paradise at the beginning? And he gives us a real simple answer, to show his loving kindness to us, to Adam and Eve, because God's goal for them was paradise to begin with, that regardless of what he knew was going to happen, this is what God wanted for us. Humans rebelled, they got kicked out. But Christensen says this, just as a father suffers his son and then finally has to kick him out because the son's too problematic, too troublesome, won't go along with the family, is getting into too much trouble, he kicks him out of the house. But it's not with the intent to simply punish the son, but that, that through the son's suffering and toil and hard work and being ostracized that he would humble himself and be fit again to receive the inheritance. And John sees that Adam and Eve being kicked out wasn't just to kind of slap them in the face. It wasn't just to make them feel bad. It was to humble them so that they would turn back to God. Chrysostom then quotes Jesus as Jesus is hanging on the cross and he turns to the thief and he says this, Today you will be with me in 
paradise. Think about that. In paradise. That Adam and Eve were born in paradise. Were kicked out of paradise. But for their betterment. That Jesus is hanging with this criminal. And this criminal is suffering. He's, he's out of the city. right? He's out of the, the community. He's up on Calvary. And that he is suffering. And going through all of this trouble. But what for? So that he would come to see Jesus. To humble himself and then be told, today you will enter paradise. That it's possible that through our punishment and through God's discipline, that it's his loving kindness showing forth so that we could enter back into paradise with him. Then, this is just wonderful. Chrysostom actually points us to the Tower of Babel. He, he even says that, hey, this is kind of a transition in my sermon. Here's the main subject at hand. He talks about how God gifted us with one language. But then what did he have to do? He had to punish us. He had to take it away at the Tower of Babel. But even this was God's loving kindness. Chrysostom tells us that he wants us to understand, and I quote, He does not chastise for what has taken place, talking about the sin, so much as he provides for improvement in the future. He goes on to say, For such a thing is wickedness. If when it was taken a start, it be not hindered as fire catching wood, so it rises to an unspeakable height. Dost thou see that the deprivation of oneness of speech was a work of much loving kindness? So he talks about how at the Tower of Babel, because humans could all speak the same language, they were working together to sin. And he talks about how wickedness, when it gets going, it just builds and builds and builds into greater wickedness. So what did God do? He gave us all kinds of different languages and split us up into different nations. Why? Because out of loving kindness, God didn't want us to fall into greater and greater sin, but he wanted us to to grow in righteousness and to cease from our sinning. And so he's showing that, that God's discipline, especially here on the earth, really here on the earth is what he's focusing on, because John has a pretty strong view of hell, that once you're there, it's game over, you've made your decision. But that discipline here on the earth is so that you will actually be turned around and turned towards God, not just merely punished, if that makes sense. And so he sees it as God's loving kindness that they would lose the oneness of language, but so that they can move on into righteousness. Um, Now, let's just stop right here for just a moment and pick up on this. Have you noticed how John is preaching this sermon where he really, his his, his base text is in Genesis, but then he's actually able to move around the scriptures? The way that John preaches and really the way John sees the Bible is as a single literary unit. That that he sees it as this whole book inspired by God. That he doesn't kind of split it up into all these different human authors, but he sees the main author as the Holy Spirit. And so he's able to actually put together uh, all of these different stories and see how they relate around this this basic subject of, of, of God's chastisement and his discipline and his rule over his people. And, and, and so this is one thing that we can learn is that the Old and the New Testaments aren't at odds with one another. That as Christians today, we don't need to just ditch the Old Testament as irrelevant and unhelpful, but John in all of his sermons is able to bring the Testament 
dance together and show how they have unity in their message, and they all kind of come together in the Lord Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind as you read the Old and the New Testament. So John has laid this foundation on this, that sometimes God chastises us and disciplines us in our sin so that we would turn and turn towards God and run away from our sin. This is the foundation, and now John is moving into his application time, and he's going to reemphasize some of these points, and he's kind of narrowing in more and more and more to answer the question of whether or not demons govern human affairs. So he's kind of narrowing us in. So let's see how he does it. So then John moves on to his first application, which is this, what we've been saying, God chastises for the sake of our betterment. He, he continues to really emphasize this point, and now he brings it into to, you know, his day, modern day his day. He says that when famines and earthquakes and and troubles come our way, it should actually produce worship of God. Now just pause and think about that. When bad stuff comes our way, we should worship God. Why? Because God is disciplining our body so that we could have fruitfulness in our souls. He says God did this in the book of Amos and that he does it today. And John quotes Amos chapter 3 verse 6. And John is quoting what's called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Bible. And so there are actually some variations there. So as you open up your Bible today, your English translation, it's going to read a little bit different. But let me give you the English translation of the Septuagint that John is quoting. So Amos 3.6 says this in the Septuagint. There is no evil in the city which the Lord hath not done. And so John, reading that word evil, says that he has to kind of differentiate between two different kinds of evils. He says there's different definitions, and we obviously don't want to fall into blasphemy and say that God commits evils. So he clarifies there's there's one kind of message of evil or concept of evil, which is clearly sin. It's doing wrong. It's, it's murder. It's sexual immorality. It's lying. All of those things. But he's saying that this evil isn't true evil, and it can't be evil because it brings about good. He talks about how in Amos' time, God brought destruction and, and, and discipline in, in that day, and it brought about repentance. So this chastisement leads to repentance. It leads to holy wisdom. But the reason that it's called evil is because it's just the fruit of the evil humans commit. That is, the humans committed evil and sinfulness. They've kind of brought evil back on their heads, finger quotes evil, and that in reality, this is a good. So we see how John is is having to kind of work with the Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament that he's using, and that we wouldn't really have this problem today in our Bibles, but John's having to explain what's going on with, with, uh, with his translation. Regardless, regardless, John points out an important point that we can learn from today. That if evil, if bad, if not evil, but if bad happens, if painful things happen, happens, he believes that it can be God doing it. He actually affirms that just like in Amos, oftentimes it's God doing it and we should worship him. Not because God wants to do evil to us. Not because God is doing evil, not because God just wants to hurt us, 
But John, or yeah, John has laid down this foundation that sometimes bad things happen to produce good, that chastisement happens to produce betterment, that we are disciplined in our body to bring fruitfulness to our souls. This is the message John is reinforced over and over and over again. Now think about that in your own life. I mean, what could you be going through right now? I'm not going to say, you know, who knows if God brought it or not. I'm just presenting what John said. Regardless, whatever is going on in your life, can God bring good out of it? Man, are you struggling with a sickness or a disease? Are you struggling with financial troubles right now? Are you having some relationship issues? Have you maybe had some problems at your work? John says that sometimes God uses these things, whether God causes it or simply uses it, to better our souls. Have you allowed it to maybe awaken awaken you out of some, some unrepentant sin? I'm not saying that the sin had to necessarily cause it, but has it awakened you? Has it disciplined your body so that you are relying on God and are kind of uh, awakened out of the comfort and the ease that this life often brings, especially here in America. John says that this evil and this bad and this difficult and this heartache can produce something fruitful in us. Just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, Cain was, was kicked out of, of, of human civilization, that, that humanity lost a common language, but it was only for our good. Can you look at the problems and the issues in your life and say, thank you, Jesus, though it's painful right now? That's what John is saying to us. But then he moves on to a second point. Chrysostom says that that a physician, a doctor, is still a physician even when he uses uh, uh, things that are painful. He kind of uses the example of his day that a physician will use not eating or remaining at home and making your home a prison. Or even surgery. Imagine surgery in the 4th century. That the, the, the doctor, the surgeon, will use that to make you better. And he says, we still call a physician a physician who do things that hurt to make us better. So how dare we call physicians good who make us better through discomfort? But we call God evil when he makes us better with discomfort. See, John knew the, the things that were going on in his, in his congregation. He's very pastoral. He knows the things that they were saying, the things that they were going through. That how could God do this to us? How could God let us suffer? That though there were people with money, there were also plenty, probably far, far, far more people in his church in that city going through extreme poverty and hunger. And they're asking, how could God let me be sick? How could God let me starve? Why is he doing this evil to me. Why is God doing this? He's bad and he's wrong. And we do the same thing today, don't we? That something bad happens in our life and we get angry at God. Good God, I thought you were good. How how could you be doing this to us? When John is asking us this, man, if doctors have to do painful things to you, if we have to go through painful surgery, if, if we have to do these horrible things that we know will make us better, then why do we get mad at God when he has to do the same thing to us? Quoting John, he says this, What excusableness should we have, tell me, in recompensing in a contrary spirit and being impatient with him, talking about God, when we ought to worship, who is so gentle and loving and careful, 
who is wiser than every physician and more full of affection than any father, more just than any judge, and more anxious than any husbandman in healing these souls of ours. That if God is better than every doctor, more caring than every father, more worried than every husband, maybe not worried, you know, more anxious for us to get better than any husband, any spouse in this world, if he's more just than any judge trying to make something right, why do we get mad at him when God is perfect? And if you're dealing with that right now, listen to the words of John, that God often uses bad and painful things in our life, not to make our lives worse, but to make them better. Remember Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden so that they would turn back to God and receive the salvation of their souls. Then he asked this question, are we deprived of the providence of God? The providence of God being God's careful ordering of the world based on his foreknowledge. God's goodness reached out to us as his ordering, his providing for us. It's in that word providence. God's providing for us, knowing what we need before we know that we need it. And instead, are our affairs ordered by demons? This is a question offered up by people as they're trying to deal with the heartache and the bad and the things going on in their world, the starvation and the sickness. They're going, well, if God is good, just like we talked about before, he can't be doing these things because these are bad. Therefore, we must have our affairs ordered by demons. And so John spent this whole sermon telling us how we, uh, how God uses bad things for our good, and now he's finally addressing this, that the bad things were used for our good from God, that God is providing for our every need, both our physical needs and our spiritual needs, and now he's going to disprove the idea that we're governed by demons. This is his quote, he says this, What then could be more insane and senseless than they who in the midst of so great good order say that we are deprived of the providence of God? It's clear that God's ordered things for our benefit. Then he uses the example of the demons who were sent into the herd of pigs in the Gospels. He says that the demons, they immediately drove the pigs off the cliff. That John kind of interprets the demons taking the charge here and killing the pigs. He says this is what the demons want to do with humans. They want to kill them. They want to destroy them. They want to end them. Demons don't want to restrain their evil. They want to torture. They, they want to bring it to its fullest extent. But God's providence restricted their evil while they were in the humans. See, the, the, the demons, before they were cast into the pigs, had taken possession of human beings. But the humans remained alive. Though they were tortured, though they suffered, they remained alive. Why? Because God's good providence is in, is in order. That God actually has authority and power over the demons and only lets them go so far. And, and he's saying that if the demons truly had their way, this world would be far worse than it is. That evil and sin would run rampant in a way that we can't even believe. And so when we begin to get angry at God and, and when we begin to struggle, maybe God's not in control. Maybe God's not really dealing with this. Maybe the devil is winning. Listen to me. The devil wants destruction. The devil wants death. The devil wants it to be as bad as it possibly can be. And St. John just basically saying, look around. It's not that bad. I mean, people are in sin. 
people do wrong, but it's not as bad as it could be because God is in control. He's ruling and he's reigning. And the bad things that do happen, God takes it and spins it around for the salvation of our souls. Finally, John answers this question. He asks, why do some good people have bad things happen to them and then some evil people have good things happen to them? He's, he's, he's trying to figure out, like, why do evil people not always just get what they deserve? And why do righteous people not always just get what they deserve? How do we reconcile these things? Are you sure God is really in control? And John essentially says this, God has aligned things for our good and for his providence to be shown. So imagine this, if all got their just desserts, what they deserved, well, there'd be no need for a judgment day. No one would believe in the resurrection. No one would trust in what God's going to do because God would just be doing it here and there. But here's the flip side. If no one got what they deserved, then everyone would just live carelessly. If they knew that they could sin and do whatever they want and there would be no punishment, then why would I not just sin every day? I might as well. But because some people are punished and others are not, by the way of fear of possible punishment, people are restrained in their sin and then hopefully brought to God. And so John kind of realizes that it's not, it doesn't really make sense to, to work this world out in which everything has to go one way or the other. That God has actually ordered it so that some people are punished and some people aren't. And what it actually does is it restrains people because they live with that fear. What if here on this earth I get what's coming to me. John says that God's punishing some, but not others, actually isn't unjust at all. It's actually a part of his providence. See, the people being punished, like, for sure deserve it, okay? So God's not being unjust, because if they're being punished, well, then they deserve it. So simple as that. But he moves on. God knows that because of the punishment of others who deserve it, other people will see that punishment and then repent of their sins. So John asked this question, how could God get rid of the future repentance of others by not punishing some? That in fact, it would be unjust to not punish some people if it's going to lead to the repentance of other people who see that punishment. Then John says this, God doesn't punish some people who do deserve it. Why? Because he's giving them a fair chance to repent by his forbearance, his long suffering. And God knows that's what they need. That they need just time to think. They need time to see God's loving kindness. It's It's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. And God knows this. An excellent thought too is this. That if God punished everyone, we'd all be dead. That John kind of ends his point with the idea that if God gave us all exactly what we deserved, then there would be no humanity left. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so as we look around and we ask this question, we ask the same question that the psalmist asks, why are the wicked succeeding and some of, of the good people are struggling? Why do the wicked not always get what they deserve? Well, God has good reasons for it. In God's foreknowledge, God has provided for certain things to happen to work out exactly how he wants them to. God knows what he's doing. So, 
Let's not just assume we aren't under God's providence. John says this, It is impossible for the human understanding to comprehend the infinity of the providence of God. John quotes Romans 11.33, which says, For his judgments are unsearchable, and his ways past finding out. That God's providence ultimately is difficult to understand. That it's actually past understanding. But God knows exactly what he's doing. God is in control. That God is working out all things for his glory. That God is working bad things in this world for our benefit. And that God restricts the punishment of some and he deals punishment of some for a good reason. That God is in control. That Satan and his demons aren't ruling. They aren't winning. But God is in control. He has all authority. And he's working his ways out for the good of the world out of his own loving kindness. Well, this was St. John Chrysostom's homily against those who say that demons govern the govern human affairs. I hope that this blessed you. I hope that it helped you. I hope that this stirred you on to want to go read this sermon and read the other sermons of St. John. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and give us a rating, give us a review, give us a like, share this with somebody who needs this, who, who maybe is struggling with something right now, needs the words of St. John, and we will see you in our next episode in a couple of weeks. See you then.